Lord, would you use and overrule my words and all of our thoughts? So your word alone is spoken and your word alone is heard. Amen. Please be seated and welcome to Christ the King. We're in a sermon series on Mark, and Mark's gospel addresses Jesus' identity, his mission, and his call by asking three questions. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And what does it look like to follow him? These are three questions that everyone should consider in their life about Jesus and about how they affect your life. In this series, each week we've considered a different aspect of Jesus' character and his ministry. Jesus as beloved son, as the one with compassion, the one who commands, a rebel, the friend of sinners, and today, Jesus the critic. Today is also a baptism day, one of my favorite days, and a day steeped in tradition. I love traditions. We, as a family with young kids, are starting new traditions of our own, going out to you know, pick apples on a beautiful fall day yesterday. Traditions affect a lot of what we do, but many traditions handed down to us, we don't always know why they've ended up in our lives. When my wife Mimi and I got married, preparing for our wedding day, I asked my friend John to be my best man. That is, to stand at my side close to me when we were up front about to take our wedding vows. And as I'm sure all of you know, the reason that I selected my friend John is because he was my friend who was the best swordsman. That's right. Typically, a best man was selected from the groom's friends as the best swordsman because in a different time, marriages were less about love, perhaps a bit more of a transaction, and just in case the deal went awry, you needed to have your heavy by your side. Traditions affect lots of parts of our lives, both big moments and small everyday habits, and we don't often think about where they come from. Our passage in Mark 7 gives us a few clues about how we can think about traditions. First, it shows a conflict about tradition. This conflict is summarized by a question for Jesus, who we see as a critic. And third, this question gives a question for us to ask about our lives. So first, the conflict. Turn with me to our gospel passage, Mark 7. We see right off the bat there's a gathering, some sort of meal, and the religious elite are there. Makes sense, wouldn't the religious elite be with Jesus, who seems to be a religious leader? I mean, here we are, religious people in a religious place, a religious day, to do a religious thing. But remember, we actually covered this passage a few weeks ago, Jesus actually gives the religious people flack, or excuse me, the religious people give Jesus flack for doing just what he's doing with them, but with sinners. For sharing a meal with sinners, they get upset. And it's a basic gospel truth that Jesus is a friend of sinners. It's not being religious that earns us friendship with Jesus. It's his love. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Religious tradition is not what saves us. It's God's grace. A simple illustration of this uh, is right here in front of you in what I'm wearing. Think about this, the, the darkness of our sin is covered over by the whiteness, the righteousness, the grace of Jesus. I was asked by a young child last week after the service, why do you wear the black and the white 
robes. Well, that's why. It's a simple reminder of that each week, that Jesus came, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. So what's the conflict here at this meal? Frankly, it's one that we can probably relate to after the last couple of years. A judgmental, judgmental glance, perhaps given by you, perhaps given to you, because somebody did not properly sanitize their hands. As my two-year-old son calls it, I need the sanitizer. We're not going to talk or debate about the merits of hand sanitizer, but you can imagine the judgment in this passage. The Pharisees are shocked that the disciples are not following protocol. I found myself this week wanting to declare to my children before dinner, why do you eat with defiled hands? <laughs> Parents, you can relate. There's an important distinction. Unlike my kids, where the issue is physical cleanliness, the issue here for the Pharisees is ceremonial purity. Look down at verse 3 and we'll see what the issue is. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. This tradition included instructions of when and how to wash their hands, their cups, their pots, their vessels, the very couches that they dined on. I'm sure you all have such rigorous procedures of cleaning at your home. It also included instructions of when and how they were to wash when they got back from the market. I'm sure that they were wiping down their groceries with wipes, as some of us did. Now, I have two toddlers. I am all for hand washing. A hundred times a day if it means we get less germs and bugs in our house. I learned from my kids, here is how you are supposed to wash. Repeat after me. This is to the tune of Frere Jaca. Tops and bottoms. Scrub, scrub, scrub. In between the fingers. Scrub, scrub, scrub. You nailed it. We'll see how the 11 o'clock service does. Well done. Our passage also gives us very specific instructions about how they were to clean. The Greek translation actually here, it doesn't mean that they were just supposed to wash. They were supposed to wash in a very specific way with their fist in their palm. Which is interesting because wouldn't you think that's focusing on cleaning the back of your hand, not the part that you eat with. And the point is that this was a ceremonial type of cleaning. This was not about physical cleanliness. And it was actually a command that wasn't in the Jewish Torah, it wasn't part of God's law, it was an add-on. It was additional restrictions given by the rabbi. And the Greek word here where it says they held to the tradition of the elders, it means that they clung to them, they held to them. They clung not to God, but to rules given by man. This wasn't so much about God's commands, but about holding to human tradition. And it's summarized by a question for Jesus. Why don't they follow the tradition? Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? And here we see Jesus the critic. You can see where this is going. Verse 6, he calls them hypocrites, a Greek word for a, an actor or a, a stage player, somebody who wears a mask of religiosity, but underneath is the real person who is quite different. Jesus quotes from the prophet Isaiah. He says that their religious ritual is just lip service. See, the issue for Jesus is that they are more co concerned with their hands than they are their hearts. And so their worship is empty and vain because it's based 
just on repeating a human tradition and not on God's commands. Now, lest we think too highly of ourselves, we Anglicans have our own fair share of traditions, don't we? Here we are about to celebrate a baptism, a ceremonial washing, a tradition. What would Jesus say? Is he for it or against it? He's for it, but let's talk about why. See, Jesus is not just a critic because he is a progressive and he is going to aggressively tear down tradition. He is not just trying to undermine the Pharisees' faith and deconstruct it. He is trying to get at what's behind it. He's a critic of human behavior that tears down instead of building up. He's a critic of things that make it harder to draw near to God. He's a critic when human tradition gets in the way of us encountering God. It's as if he is saying in verse 8, you can give up the human traditions, but hold to God's. Don't leave God's commands, because God's commands are meant to give us life. They're meant to shape our hearts and our lives for the good that God desires for us. Literally, the, the Hebrew of Isaiah that he quotes says people's hearts are far, far, far away from God. It's an emphatic. He repeats it in the Hebrew. And Jesus wants our hearts, our very lives, to be close to him, to be near to him. See, Jesus is a critic, and here's the issue. The issue is not with traditions. The issue is with our hearts. So let's circle back to Mark's three questions. First, who is Jesus? Well, yes, among other things, he is a critic. But he only renounces things that keep us from God and the good that God desires for us. Why has he come? Bless you. To borrow from our Anglican catechism, Jesus has come simply because he loves you. He wants to be your savior, to save you from sin and judgment, and he wants to be your Lord. That is, he wants to be the authority in your life. He wants you to be in a relationship of love with him. Later in our service, we'll have the opportunity to join with the baptismal candidates and parents and godparents and confess that we believe these things, that Jesus loves us, that we need him, and that we desire to follow him. If you've never thought or confessed those things, I invite you to join with us and consider those this morning. So this question that they ask of Jesus prompts a question for us. It's Mark's third question. What does it look like to follow Jesus? Now, following Jesus means valuing God's commands over traditions. But when we think about God's commands, we might think about the Ten Commandments. We might think, well, aren't those the dusty old traditions that we're supposed to avoid? We might think of our passage from Deuteronomy about commandments or laws that seem outdated to us. But Jesus tells us that he didn't come to abolish or cancel the Old Testament law or those traditions. He came to fulfill them. And in his Sermon on the Mount, he actually, he reframes them and reminds us that following God's commands are not about following a set of religious rituals and rules. They're instead about our hearts. Furthermore, Jesus promises his followers the Holy Spirit. He promises that he will send his very spirit to write God's law of love on our hearts. 
And in our very natural, normal lives, when we turn away from God and the good things that he desires for us, it's the Holy Spirit that convicts, that feels heavy on our hearts and moves us to turn back to God. So for us today, a couple simple questions to consider. Are there habits or traditions that draw us away from God? Are there patterns or habits in your lives? Are there cultural traditions, family rituals, things that actually draw you away from the good that God has for you? And in the positive, are there traditions that help draw you near to God? I hope that today is a reminder of some of those. Writers from Augustine to James K. A. Smith to Tish Harrison Warren all recognize that worship shapes our hearts. The liturgy, that is, the words and the actions that we say and do together as we gather for worship, they shape who we are. And so do the very rhythms and habits of our lives. Now, in our tradition, following Jesus also includes two distinct traditions, both of which we will join in today. These are markers or signposts meant to point us to God's love for us in Jesus. They are baptism and the Eucharist, the Lord's table. And it's important to note that these aren't just human traditions handed down to us by some church of yesteryear. These are actually Jesus's commands for his followers that we're to celebrate the table and be reminded that we're to baptize with water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We call these sacraments. They are a, a visible image of an invisible reality. And in the visible image of baptism, Jesus identifies with us as sinners, because Jesus was baptized himself, and in baptism, we identify with Jesus, knowing that we share in the new life he offers. And in the visible image of the Eucharist, we commemorate the Lord's Supper with his disciples. And we celebrate God's often invisible but actual presence with us. These are moments not just to participate in as ritual, but to encounter God and ask him to transform our hearts. So baptism more than washing is about the heart. For an adult, one of whom will be baptized, a young adult will be baptized this morning. It's a response of the heart to God's saving love for you. And it welcomes God's Holy Spirit to form your heart. For young children, it's a matter of heart for parents and godparents. Those who desire that child to know God's love. And it's a matter of heart for that young child because we are assured that God is able to shape their hearts towards him as they grow. And lastly, for all of us, these are moments for us to remember our baptismal vows or for us to consider what baptism might mean for us. It's a chance for us to recommit our hearts to following God, to remember that we need Jesus as Lord and Savior. Join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, help us to know your saving love for us in Jesus.